Genesis 2, starting with verse 22. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Thus, the ending of the first chapter of the human race comes to its conclusion. A naked man singing love songs over a naked woman in the presence of God. Very happy picture. However, chapter 3 would come on the heels of this, and what is now known as the fall would take place. Sin would enter the world and mar relationships and everything. It would fracture everything for all time. And since the fall, there have been questions about sex and sexuality, about its right use. And the situation in Corinth is no different as we begin, get ready to look at the beginning of chapter 7 together. There are still questions about sex and sexuality. And what Paul is going to teach the Corinthians this morning in chapter 7 is that God has created sex to be enjoyed only within the context of marriage. And that he gives the gift of singleness to some and the gift of marriage to others. Subsequently, I'm going to exhort you this morning to be the church and to walk with God in whatever situation you find yourself in. Um, to give you the big picture, I, I recognized last night, a little bit later than I would have liked to, that I'm not going to be able to get through all 40 verses this morning, uh, and so that you're not freaking out when it's like, you know, 10 after 12, and you're like, he's only in verse 11! Like, don't worry, we're, we're, I'm going to split this into two, and we're going to focus primarily on marriage this week. Don't worry, singles, next week you will have your day. Uh, and so, um, all that, in light of that, I, I want to give you the big picture of the chapter. The Corinthians have obviously had questions about um, how to approach sexuality and marriage upon their conversion. And, and the primary point of chapter 7 is that they're kind of asking Paul, how can I honor God as a single person? If I was single when I was saved, do I need to get married in order to honor God? Or, on the other hand, they're asking, if I'm married and I became a Christian, do I need to stay married to honor God? Especially if I've become a Christian and my spouse is not a Christian. How, how can I honor God? Do I need to change my relationship status in order to glorify God with my body? And Paul's response is going to be, remain as you are. You kind of see that, that is repeated over and over again in verses 17 through 24, and it's really the heartbeat of this section. He's saying, no matter what your situation is in life, you can honor God there. You don't have to wait till your relationship status changes to bring honor and glory to the king. You can do it right now. He says, God has saved you in the situation you are in, and he can use you in your current situation. 
So remain. Don't worry about changing your temporary circumstances because those temporary circumstances are passing away. Indeed, he exhorts them to lift their eyes to that which is permanent, the promises of God. The world around you may change, your relationship status may change, your circumstances may change, but the promises of God do not. The riches of the gospel do not. Jesus Christ does not change. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so Paul is saying, live your life now in light of the future. As messed up as things in the temporary can become, don't let them concern you. Don't let those worries weigh you down. Don't let those sorrows drag you into despair because a day is coming when this earth will pass away. It will give way to the new. And God will make all things new. Marriage is part of that which is passing away. It won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. Your current circumstances are passing away. They're going to give way to the grand reality of our relationship with Christ. And so he's he's quite simply saying, walk with God now, wherever you may be, single or married. Take heart, because your current circumstances are not the last word. There is a permanent day coming, a day of promise, when Christ returns and says, Behold, I am making all things new. So with that big picture in mind, I would like to pray and then give you some context and then we'll get into the text. Let's pray together. God, we ask for your help this morning. We are all um, messy sinners in need of grace. Father, remind us once again, of, once again of that glorious good news that you are willing to save any who turn from their sin and cling to you. Make us good repenters. Help us to listen to your word and to shape our lives accordingly by the power of your Holy Spirit who resides within us. Father, this is a uh, most complex and difficult chapter. Just pray that you would help us to navigate it properly in a way that's honoring to you, in a way that helps us to see and savor Jesus in the way that he deserves to be enjoyed. Encourage our hearts this morning. Give us clarity of thought and focus that we might meet with you now as we listen to your word. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
So to this point in 1 Corinthians, as you know, uh, Paul has been responding to reports that he heard from Chloe's people. He's addressing matters that he's heard about. And as we saw the last few weeks, he's been speaking to matters of sexuality. Incestuous sexuality in chapter 5, if you remember, a young man was sleeping with his father's wife. We didn't know if it was his stepmom or his actual mom. Either way, we said this is pretty gross and pretty inappropriate. And Paul said, discipline him, remove the evil one from among you. And then last week we saw at the tail end of chapter 6, Paul is saying what you do with your body matters. Your sexual um, activity matters to God. You can't do whatever you want with your body because God is going to raise your body in the same way that he resurrected Christ. Your body is where the Holy Spirit dwells. Your body is where God lives. You are not your own. You were bought at the price of the blood of Christ and you belong to God. And this week, he's going to continue on that theme of addressing sexuality by giving an answer to a Corinthian letter. They've written him a letter full of questions and most of the rest of what's left of 1 Corinthians is going to be Paul's response to that letter. It's important to understand that there are two different groups in Corinth. Uh, The one that he addressed last week, which is primarily hedonistic in nature, and the group that he's going to address this week, which is more ascetic in nature. And so you, you have one group that says, if it feels good, it's good. If it feels good, do it. And then on the other hand, you have a group of people that are saying, if it feels good, do not do it, right? It's very bad for you if it feels good. And they're saying the way to honor God sexually is to be celibate no matter what, even if you're married, whereas the other group is the saying, it doesn't really matter. We can do whatever we want. And so these are opposite sides of the pole. And so Paul has spoken to the hedonistic group, and now he's going to speak to the more ascetic group. Two questions before we get into the chapter that need to be answered. The first one, if you read it before you came, is this. Is this chapter authoritative for my life? Is this chapter the word of God? Right, there are these verses in chapter, in verse 10 and I think 12 and 25, somewhere around there, uh, wherein Paul says, the Lord says, not I to you. I say, not the Lord. I give you this command and not Christ. And, and some have used that to say, well, see, Paul is, is not writing the Word of God in this chapter. It's just his opinion, and therefore it's not binding on us. We need not submit ourselves to it. It doesn't really matter. It's superfluous. That's a terrible way of looking at this chapter. It's not as if Paul is writing the inspired Word of God as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit one minute, and then the next minute, poof! like a balloon punctured with a pin. All of that inspiration just escapes right out of him. No, that's a terrible way of looking at the text. Paul is inspired throughout. And when he is making reference to the Lord saying, the Lord is used in Pauline literature as a title for the Lord Jesus. And so what he's doing is saying, Jesus said specifically in his earthly ministry, he spoke to this issue, and this is what he said. But he didn't speak to this particular situation and issue. And so here is what he says through the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says through my pen, right? He wants to, as most early Christians did, they want to be very, very careful to delineate the difference between what 
the apostles are teaching and what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. Both are the word of God. Both are authoritative. But they want to make sure it's clear what Jesus spoke to specifically when he was on earth in the flesh and what they are addressing through the Holy Spirit in, a, in terms of new revelation here and now. And so, yes, this is an authoritative chapter. Yes, chapter 7 is the Word of God, and Paul is writing it to us, and we need to submit ourselves to it. The second thing I want to point out is the involvement that is going on between the Corinthians and Paul. Look at verse 1. It says, Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, or if you brought that across more woodenly, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what it means. It's good not to have sex for a woman with a woman. And this is a Corinthian slogan. Remember last week we pointed out it's crucial to understand and identify where these Corinthian slogans are in the book to understand how Paul is responding to them. In verse 12, it's everything is permissible for me. And Paul adds to their slogan, not everything is beneficial. He picks up that slogan again in chapter 10 and addresses it. He also addressed their slogan, the stomach for food and the food for stomach. Uh, he's addressed other slogans at the beginning. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. And he has said, uh, these slogans only capture part of the truth and they have been twisted to the end of serving yourselves. And so he's going to speak into what their kind of ideology is. He's going to change it, make it more orthodox. And so the Corinthians have said to him in a letter, hey, is it good for a man not to have sex with a woman? Because that's the, the tact, that, that's the path that they've started to go down in terms of the ascetic camp. And Paul is going to respond to that question in verse 2. But before we get there, I just want to point out how personal and intimate their relationship is. Right, this is, if you are looking at your outline, um, this is the gift of the church in action. Right? Paul has a relationship with these people in such a way that as they've discussed these issues among themselves, they've recognized we can't come to a clear conclusion. But they see Paul as a leader in whom they trust, whom they will submit themselves to. And so they've written him a letter and asked for his opinion on these matters. They want to follow his spiritual leadership. They're not afraid to talk about sexuality and issues pertaining to uh, their personal lives. And so they appeal to their commonality in Christ, and say, how do we work this out together? And, and the reason I bring this up is because I try to um, beat this drum a lot, is that Christianity is personal, but it is not private. It's not private. Even what you do in your bedroom is not mutually private only to you. That's what this text is showing us. That God cares about what is happening in terms of your sexual behavior I mean, that's part and parcel that Christianity is personal but not private. It's part and parcel to what it means to be a Christian and to belong to a church. Like what you're saying is we agree about the gospel. We are rallying around our commonality in Jesus Christ. And we are going to hold one another accountable to following Jesus Christ. I always love to say it this way. When you become a church member, 
in obedience to following Christ's call on your life, you are saying, my life is your business and your life is my business. We're going to help one another follow Jesus. And the lives of the Corinthians are Paul's business. And so he addresses their questions. Uh, If you look down at verse 7 of chapter 7, you'll see a verse that's actually going to function as a paradigm for the whole kind of, well, most of the chapter. This is what he says. I wish that all people were as I am. He's single at this point. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. He's going to speak to the gift of marriage on the front end of the chapter, and if you look at the back end of the chapter, he's going to speak to the gift of singleness or celibacy. And it's important to note that these are not gifts of capacity, but gifts of situation. And what I mean is this, uh, if you go, oh no, I think I have the gift of singleness and uh, I have no longings, and so that means I, may, I can never ever get married even if I want to. It's not, it's not a capacity gift, right? It's a gift of situation. And what that means is, if you are single right now, you have the gift of singleness. And if you are married right now, you have the gift of marriage. So Paul is going to speak to these two gifts. And he begins by addressing the gift of marriage and how it relates to sex within the church, starting in verse 2. Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And then this is really revolutionary at Paul's time. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. And as a buddy of mine who made this his life verse, used to quip, and again, and again, and again. Come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. The concession part is that you can stop having regular sexual intimacy in order to pray. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, and one person has this gift and another that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain I am, that's single. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn. A few observations. The first observation is this, that sex outside of marriage is sin. Paul's prescription for sexual immorality, he says, if you are going to have sex, if you can't control your passions, get married. Have sex with your spouse. It is a terrible thing to divorce sexual activity from marriage. The two go hand in glove. Sex is meant to be the sign and seal of a lasting and enduring covenant that has been made between the two parties. 
Right? Sex is supposed to symbolize the whole relationship, the giving of the whole person to the other. The difference between a covenant relationship and a consumer relationship, right? If, I, if I'm a consumer, right, and I get my groceries down, let's say I get my groceries down at the IGA, uh, and I get my groceries down there because they have the best prices in town, now y'all know I'm, it's just an illustration, right? But, but I go down there for everything. And then another store comes in, and let's say it's a Dollar General, hypothetically. And they have cheaper prices than the IGA. Better, better service, better product. All of a sudden, my relationship with the IGA is, is pretty much over, right? So, hey, you were meeting my needs for this period of time, but now something better has come along. I think likewise, uh, I think of Amazon. I love Amazon, use it all the time, uh, buy everything on there. But if a better company comes along, my relationship with Amazon is going to come to an end. Right? And, and, and sex outside of marriage is like a consumer relationship. It's saying, you're meeting my needs right now. Right? It's, a, it's a declaration of present love. But covenant the context in which sexual activity is supposed to take place, is not a declaration of present love. It is a promise of future love. And it's only in the soil of covenant that sexual activity can thrive and actually picture what it is meant to picture. Covenant creates personal relationship, a personal relationship that is more loving, more intimate, because it is legal. Consumer relationship says, you adjust to me or I'm out of here, but a covenant relationship says, I've committed to you and I will adjust to you. I am going to love you no matter what. I'm committed. I'm giving myself to you. That's what the covenant relationship says. The consumer relationship says, give me mine. And sex outside of covenant says, I am doing what is best for me right now. Like maybe you'll say, I love you, but I, and you have present love, but it's less than what it's meant to be. Uh, C.S. Lewis used to say that, that sex outside of marriage is akin to tasting food without swallowing or digesting it. It's removing the activity from its proper context and its fulfillment. Ultimately, sexual sin is just how idolatry expresses itself. Right? Uh, idolatry is building the meaning of your life on anything or anyone other than Jesus. That's what idolatry is. And if you are not willing to submit to God's lordship in regards to the stewardship of your sexuality, what you are proclaiming is, God, I am not going to worship you. I'm going to worship sex because that's where I find my meaning. That's where I find what it means to be fully human. I'm going to serve sex rather than you. It's, it's just like the greedy person gives their heart to money. So too, the person that is enslaved to sex gives themselves 
through sex. And this breaks the heart of God because it's an abandoning of worshiping God in order to worship other gods. It's the breaking of that first commandment. It is the same as Israel bowing down to the golden calf in the wilderness not so long ago. Thousands of years have passed. Things have changed, but people have not. We still exchange worshiping the almighty and wonderful God in order to worship that which feels good or seems right to us. You belong to whatever it is that grips your heart, whatever it is that you love. I told a story last week, and I'll tell it again because I think it illustrates this well, of a young man visiting his minister and proclaiming that he has an irrepressible sex drive. And his pattern of sleeping with women is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. And so as he lays out that really it's not his fault because God has made him this way, the the pastor asks him this question. He says, suppose I came into your bedroom and caught you at the front end of this inevitable process. And I said to you as I took 10 $100 bills out of my pocket, the cash is yours if you stop now. And the young man thought for a moment and said, I'll take the cash. You say, what happened to the irrepressible desire? Well, one passion seems great until a greater passion comes along and supplants it. You belong to what grips your heart. You belong to what you are most passionate about. And so, Christian, what grips your heart? Jesus or something else? In this context, as he's speaking to the Corinthians, he wants to make plain that sex shall not be their master, but Christ alone shall be their master. Second observation, sex in marriage is pure. It is the uh, covenant cement. It's the cement of the covenant. It's the glue of the covenant that kind of holds the enterprise together. It's a sign and seal of the relationship. And so every time a married couple engages in sexual activity, it is as if they are recommitting those same vows they made to one another when they entered into the covenant of marriage. They're saying, I still do. I give myself to you as you give yourself to me. It's a beautiful covenant renewal ceremony between husband and wife. We also know that in this passage we see that sex is not about I, you owe me, but I owe you, right? When it says, husbands, your bodies don't belong to you, they belong to your wives. Wives, your bodies don't belong to you, they belong to your husband. And he's saying, uh, come together again, do not deprive one another. That doesn't give you right to say to your spouse, hey, you belong to me, you know? Let's, let's go right now. No, no, that's, that's demanding your right. What Paul, Paul is saying is that the posture of this is, I owe you. How can I serve you? How can I give myself to you for your betterment? Sex inside of marriage is beautiful and glorious and a good thing. And the Bible is not bashful about this. 
bashful as some of us might be. Like, it will make you blush if you read through Song of Solomon. Like, even translators, they, get, they chicken out in translating some of the things because they're like, that's just too graphic. I mean, Proverbs is beautiful, right? I love it. It's a, Your wife is a, a graceful doe, a young deer. Let her breast satisfy you forever. Be satisfied in her love. Drink from your own cistern. Enjoy the delights of marriage. These, the song of Solomon and the Proverbs and, and the Scriptures hold up a view of sex that is far higher than our culture's view. It means so much more. It's also not just for purity in marriage. We see in these verses and elsewhere throughout Scripture that it's for pleasure. It is to be a pleasurable experience wherein husband and wife give themselves to one another. They serve one another in love. Another benefit of sex is that it protects. Look at verse 5 and 6. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex is a protection. Paul is saying the evil one will use sexual temptation to draw you outside of your covenant of marriage, to draw you away from God. Protect yourself, married couples. Have sex with one another regularly. Hebrews 13, 4 and 5 says this, Marriage is to be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will not leave you or forsake you. Satan loves to use money and sex to tempt us away from Christ. Paul is exhorting married couples here to recommit themselves to one another regularly. It's a picture of their covenant with one another. And it's a picture of our covenant with Christ. Marriage, even in the beginning, was meant to show the joys of, being, uh, of people being in relationship with one another and with God, in God's presence without sin. And even now, it's meant to show us who God is. Before I get there, I'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit. Sex in marriage protects. It protects us from committing sin against God, from using it outside of the proper context. If you look down at verses 8 and 9, it says, better to marry than to burn. Uh, this is Paul, again, prescribing how to avoid sexual immorality. Uh, I know you might have burned with passion, uh, but the words with passion are not in the original text. I think Paul leaves it deliberately ambiguous because the idea is to burn with passion. It's better to marry than to burn with passion, but also it's better to marry than to burn in judgment. Right? He's just told us the cost of sexual sin. He says, don't be deceived in chapter 6, verse 9. Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, he gives a list, will inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is serious. 
and we need to protect ourselves from it. And your protection from it, if you're unable to control yourself, is marriage. Protect yourself. The Puritans get a really bad rap. People think they're prudish, and, and they were very serious. But they actually used to employ church discipline for couples that would not regularly engage in sexual relationship with one another. Now, they had no way to monitor that. It might be a little awkward. But they, they, you can go back and read where they have instances of one spouse coming and saying, my spouse is denying me conjugal rights and where they stepped in and carried out discipline so that this person would bring themselves into obedience to the command of God to not deny their spouse sexual relationship. It's important. This is a command that should be easy for you married couples to obey. It is funny, uh, I do think that Prior to marriage, everybody's experiences is that the evil one tries to get you into bed, into a sexual relationship. And then once you get married, it seems that the strategy changes where he tries to keep you out of bed and to put you in bed with other lovers. Protect yourself. The, the big application here, have sex if you're married. Singles, we'll talk to you next week. But singleness is tantamount to celibacy here. You can read Matthew 19 and the rest of the chapter. Have sex, married couples. As uh, one minister put it, put the fun back in fundamental. Enjoy one another. Protect one another. It's also interesting to note that the one concession Paul gives for, um, I guess, uh, suspending regular sexual relationship with one another is to pray, to pray. I listened to Dr. Carson teach on this text, and he recounted a student asking him, Dr. Carson, why can't you do both of these things at once? Like, why do we need to abstain from sex in order to pray? And Dr. Carson kind of laughed and said, you aren't married, are you? Uh, and he, he pointed out that our lives are so busy. They're so busy, especially when you add children into the mix that we often can't do both, or one will eclipse the other. I wonder, have you ever said, we're not going to engage in a sexual activity tonight so that we can pray? Pray. It is that important. But even prayer, important, as important as it is, Paul says, don't, don't give it up for too long. Don't pray too long. Because you need to have sex again in order to protect yourself against the evil one. You need to renew your vows to one another. Sex is pure inside of marriage. It is for pleasure inside of marriage. It is for procreation. Happy Mother's Day. And it is for, it is a picture. It's a picture of the gospel. Right? That our world is symbol-laden. And we would be fools not to recognize that, right? In the same way, flowers represent love. Fireworks represent a celebration. Your signature on a line represents your promises. A wedding ring represents your marriage. I actually, uh, ironically enough, lost my wedding ring this week. This is a different one. My old one was more black. 
Uh, I hurried up and got a new one because I was like, you know, Chelsea with four kids out of town, me without a wedding ring on Mother's Day, it would be a bad look. Uh, <laughs> and so I wanted to make sure I got my wedding ring back on. But, but not having my wedding ring on didn't make me unmarried, right? It's a symbol of the reality. And marriage is a symbol that is meant to point to the reality of our union with Jesus Christ. Our mingling of souls, our union in the flesh becoming one with one another is to point us to the greater reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. In the same way that my wedding ring, uh, it's white gold, it's not that impressive, right? I got it on Amazon. When you look at it, you might go, that's, that's a nice wedding ring. It's really cool. But it points to a, something that's way better, a dynamic relationship that exists between Chelsea and I. It's a symbol that points to something greater. Your marriage, your sexual activity in marriage points to something greater. Ephesians 5, verse one quoting Genesis, Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The promises we make to one another in marriage are meant to represent and point us to the unchanging and permanent promises of God that procure for us adoption into God's family, and all the blessings of heaven. They're meant to represent for us the dynamic intimacy that we experience with Christ, now in part, and then we will experience in full. Your marriage is not about you. It's about God. Your sex life is not about you. It's about God. God created sex and it is pleasurable and it is fun and it's a good gift, but like all of His good gifts, it is to function to the end of bringing Him glory. It's about God. It's important here too to recognize that marriage isn't designated to satisfy your every longing. It's meant to point you to the God who does satisfy. If you think, if you're a married couple or you're a single person that wants to one day be married, if you think that your spouse and your marriage are going to be what make you live happily ever after, you are going to be a terrible spouse or you are a terrible spouse because people make terrible, terrible gods. They will let you down. They will sin against you. I mean, later on, uh, Paul says you're going to have more troubles in this life if you get married, and we're going to get to that next week. But, I mean, you just think about it really simply. You're a sinner. Think about how messed up you are just in and of yourself. And then adding another sinner into your life, what do you think is going to happen? Right? More mess. More sin. And then if you're following uh, the first part of chapter 7 here, you might even have more sinners into your relationship. Right? It's harder. There is trouble that comes in marriage. It's not meant to satisfy your every longing. Though it can be uh, wonderful and greatly satisfying, it's ultimately meant to point you to the only one who can satisfy you fully and satisfy you finally. And so it's crucial that we don't confuse the model with the reality. Don't confuse the model with the reality. 
is a movie called Zoolander. I don't know if any of you have seen it. I'm not endorsing it here. But uh, the premise of the movie is the more good-looking you are, the dumber you are, right? And so Ben Stiller plays a character who's a male model, and he's really, really dumb. And there's a modeling agency. They're trying to lure him in. They, they want him to commit to them as a modeling agency. And so he has this dream, this vision, where he's going to build a uh, big building, and he's going to call it Derek Zoolander's Center for Children Who Can't Read Good and Want to Learn to Do Other Stuff Good, too. Right? That's his dream. And so they, they present him with this model of what it would look like, and he strolls into the room, and then quickly he gets infuriated, and he says, What is this? A center for ants? He's mistaken the model for the reality. Do not mistake your marriage, the model of our relationship with Christ, for the reality of relationship with Christ. Do not mistake the wedding ring for what it is to be married. Marriage is to be a picture of the love that exists between Christ and his church. Your identity is not in your marriage or in your singleness. And Paul's going to tease that out throughout the rest of the chapter. I wanted to cover more, but we're not going to get there. I don't want to keep it too long. Um, your marriage is meant to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. Is it doing that? Are you doing that? Are you giving yourself sacrificially to your spouse? For that is what Christ has done for you. You, wife and husband, are both to follow Jesus in your marriage by continually giving yourself to one another. You carry out those promises of covenant and it shows us that God is committed to our good and His glory no matter what happens. Love your spouse well as Christ has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that sex is a concrete sign of our whole relationship in regards to married couples. Pray that you would help us to all be faithful to our promise of future love in the same way that you are faithful to your promise to love us well into the future. We thank you that despite our sin, despite our proclivity to turn your good gifts into idols that we worship, whether sex or money or sports, or family, or whatever it is, you still forgive us when we turn from those sins and place our faith in you once more. Father, we act as whores, and yet you love us still. And we've been made perfect in you, declared righteous, acquitted of our sin, forgiven of our sin, and you celebrate us amazing. We thank you that 1 Corinthians 6.11 is true of us. That even though we used to be dead in our sin, 
Even though we used to walk according to wickedness, by faith in you we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified. These are tremendous truths. Lord, you see the depths of our hearts and the depths of our sin, and you love us the same. Your faithful love never ends. It never stops. It never gives up on us. And so, Father, we pray for those of us who are married that you would give us the strength to never give up on picturing you in our marriages. Help us to make the gospel look glorious as we give ourselves up for the good of our spouses. Lord, we thank you that you have called us, the church, your bride, and we look forward to our wedding supper with you, our wonderful groom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.